Hi girls, guys, and my non-binary siblings in between. Welcome back to On The Mic, outspoken LGBTQ storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, people from all over Chicago gather at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQIA people. Now we're going back into the archives, six years of archives, to bring the stories to you. This month's episode is loud and proud. We're celebrating a very special birthday. We'll take a trip to the 1960s gay neighborhood and hear from a heterosexual who went viral at a pride parade. Let's get to it. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. So I am deeply honored to be introducing this next storyteller who I think is just phenomenal. Gira Goldstein is a nationally recognized diversity and inclusion consultant for businesses, government agencies, hospital networks, educators, and law enforcement. She has been featured on the NBC Today Show, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and is founder of the Gender Cool Project, a powerful national movement that centers the stories and voices of young people who identify as transgender. This is her fourth time on the outspoken stage in her first time telling this story. Let us welcome Gira to the stage. So the honor is mine, thank you, Kim. And standing amongst giants, Art, thank you for always providing this space. I know many of you know what Art has done for this community, for my family. I wouldn't be who I am if it weren't for you. And this space, I've been to so many events here, I can't even count. And as I said last time, it's like a community center with really hot bartenders. <laughs> so um, maybe religion is a theme, because 27 years ago, my wife and I had a little bit of trouble getting married in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and not because I'm transgender, but because I'm Jewish. <laughs> and people will say to me, wait a minute, you're married to a woman, you're transgender, you transitioned and she stayed with you? I'm like, bitch. <laughs> I stayed with her. And then I'm all like, sorry, mom. I didn't mean to call you a bitch. So um, it took me about 20 years to transition from the time that I disclosed my gender identity to my wife, to the person you see standing here tonight. And my life is not pre-transition, post-transition. It's a continuous arc, although sometimes 
pre-transition moments hit me like a bolt of lightning or something more subtle like an anvil to my head. <laughs> it was the weekend before my gender-affirming surgery. Thank you for not asking. Never ask that question. <laughs> and we decided to celebrate the moment in the city with a special weekend together. Sort of like a pre-birthday birthday, last chance to blow out the candle, so to speak. <laughs> Okay. You've all had birthdays, I see. We had a great time in the city. It was awesome. And we ended up back in the hotel room. Some magic was about to go down. And my wife, she was thinking that this was actually going to be the last time that we would be intimate the way we'd always known. And I was thinking, I get a vagina on Tuesday. <laughs> so, the surgery was a success. Well, mostly a relief. And I remember waking up in the hospital and feeling so incredibly grateful and realizing how much I love morphine <laughs> and how much it fucking hurt. And I also remember this beautiful bouquet of balloons that my wife brought into the room that said, it's a girl. And it made me cry. <laughs> now, I didn't really want anyone to visit me at the hospital. It was hard enough to have my wife there. This is very private, very personal, and my two kids were also coming, but I didn't tell anybody else because I'm obviously laying in that hospital bed for one reason. It's like my kids would be, hi, mom, how's your uh, hoo-ha? Do, uh, and I'm not a person that likes to talk about my genitals, which is why I'm here tonight. <laughs> talking about my genitals. Well, some time went by, and I was healing. It was a February Saturday morning. My house was what I would call winter quiet. There were no birds. It was freezing outside. No snowblowers. It was perfectly quiet. And the sun was beaming in the window in the morning time, and I could feel it on my face. And it was warming me. And I thought, of a beach, someplace, someplace warm. And my eyes were still closed and I heard my wife walking along the foot of the bed. And then she was there between me and the sunlight that was hitting my face. And she said to me, hey babe, I have some coffee. And as she said that, I smelled the coffee at the same time. I took one deep breath and I opened my eyes and there she was standing there, 
with the sun behind her, she was beaming, stunning, radiant, absolutely beautiful. And I thought in that moment, I thought, if I could freeze any moment in time and spend the rest of my life there, that might be one of those moments. Now, up until that point, I hadn't really been thinking about intimacy. Sure, I was healing, and I was relearning my body. I had all the same parts. They were just rearranged correctly. And my life had also changed in other ways. I felt prior to transition that my life was somehow set up for me to be an observer. And over those months as I was healing, I felt more of a participant. But I saw her standing there, and I took her hand, and I pulled her close to me, because now I was thinking about intimacy. My body lit up. It felt electric. I felt flush. I felt horny. So I was pulling at her hand, and she set the coffee on the nightstand, and she rolled across the top of me. And I thought, I'll do what I always did. Get on top of her. And in that moment, it hit me. Like that bolt of lightning, or that anvil I had mentioned earlier. There were no more candles. And how could I have not thought about this moment? How could I have not come to understand the gravity of what I had been through? I wouldn't have changed anything. But I started to spiral. And I started to think about the way I felt prior to my transition and the way that my body didn't feel right. I didn't know what to do. And I looked at her. And she looked at me, and in that moment, she saw a tear in my eye, and I saw in her the same. And it felt as if she knew what I was thinking, and that it was the first time I was thinking it. And she put her hand behind my neck, and she said, it's OK, babe. You look so beautiful in the sunlight. Many months went by, actually years, and we've learned how to reconnect on the deepest levels of intimacy. And people say, oh, she stayed with you. Well, hell yeah, she stayed with me. And I stayed with her. And every day, we think about what it is. We look for that moment. And for us, that moment is love. And for us, that's enough. And what I learned, maybe the most important thing through this whole experience, is that behind every good woman is another good woman. So this story is not mine alone. I'd like to introduce my wife, who does have a name, Jennifer. Please stand up. And thank you all for having us here. Ladies and gentlemen, Gerald Goldstein. Wow. Wow, wow. Our second storyteller, Alexis Martinez. Alexis was born and currently resides in Chicago, Illinois. 
She is a trans woman with a history of human rights activism across the United States. In 2012, Alexis Martinez and her daughter Leslie Martinez Etherly were recorded by StoryCorps, and the story aired on NPR radio stations across the United States. Her story of love and purpose was received well by supporters, and Alexis was encouraged to continue to share her story on a larger platform. Alexis Martinez was recognized by Trans 100 for her activism work, and she has served on numerous panels as an educator of trans healthcare needs and awareness. Alexis was awarded a scholarship to the public narrative training for transgender organizers in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alexis Martinez. Really what I, I was born in Chicago in 1950 and Chicago formed the person who I am, I believe it. I'm a Chicagoan, true and blue, you know. Um, I was born in, um, the middle of the city, I mean, uh, little, little Italy. But when I was four years old, um, we moved to the uh, 24th and State, which was the Harold Ickes Projects. And we were there for the next 17 years. But um, on the other side of the tracks, there was no Dan Ryan Expressway at the time, um, was Chinatown. And I hung with the Chinese kids, you know. And now I'm Apache and Mexican. And um, the, the racial, like, mixing bag that I came out of um, let me see a lot of different cultures and exposed me to, you know, the fact that we're really much more alike than we are different. Um, in 1955, uh, Emmett Till was killed. And even though I could barely speak English, I remember being in those projects and the this sort of pall that hung over the whole neighborhood. Everybody was talking about it. When I was older, I realized what it was. But um, that year, there was a, a, a woman by the name of uh, Gracie Smith that moved in. She was an 80-year-old black woman from Mississippi, and she became sort of like very influential in my life in, in, in a small sort of way. Or not, not small, actually. Uh, because her mother was a slave, and, it, it, and she would tell me these stories, you know, but she was one of the first people that said, she told me, you a sissy, don't be ashamed of it. She says, that's the way God made you, you know, don't be ashamed of it. I don't know how she picked up on it, but she sure enough did. <laughs> you know, um, but I loved her fierceness, her fearlessness, you know, and it's something that really is ingrained in me. I'm afraid of being afraid. You know, being in those projects, for example, and being transgender, I developed like two personalities. I rem remember walking around trying to emulate um, John Wayne's walk. <laughs> you know, no, because it, people would call me a little sissy. You know, and it was like, you'd get beat up. I don't know what it is that when they see something like that, they gotta gang up on you and beat you up. But it was the same thing on the other side of the tracks. Now, Chicago at that time was like, people who are 
you know, in their 20s or something have no idea how segregated this city really was. It's still segregated, but I mean, we're talking block by block. In, in, in Chinatown, Chinese were allowed, like, you know, Cermak Road, 22nd Street, Alexander, and the other, the, the other areas were like completely forbidden to them. You know, now it goes all the way down to Bridgeport. <laughs> it, you know, but back then it wasn't like that. You know, um, black people were not allowed anywhere on the other side of the tracks. Uh, and again, that was before, um, bef before the Dan Ryan Expressway. But uh, we, I remember, everybody had a hustle. The Chinese ran the gambling, the Italians ran whatever it was that they ran. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I mean, there was, there was, a, there, there was the, the numbers game. Everybody was in, in on it. And you know the, the the everybody knew how the elections were. It was you know you got a carton of cigarettes or a chicken or two bucks and you voted for Kennedys. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean that's what it was. You know, and in Chinatown there was a Chinese Christian Union Church for the Protestants and the Catholics were Saint Teresa or Santa Maria in Cornada. You know, and the division between the Protestants and the Catholics was almost like what what the Irish were doing. We would have fights with the with the uh, with the Protestants, and they would have fights with the the Catholics. But it, <clears throat> for myself, I had to navigate this thing. I belonged to a Chinese gang called the Chinatown Nomads. You know, I was looking for the jacket to tonight, but I couldn't. You know, because I was going to bring it. It was, a, it was a motorcycle jacket with you know all of the regalia and everything, and we have, I had my little motorcycle and everything. But. It's, it's, I'm not embellishing these stories either. They're, they're actually true. But the way I used to deal with, I had this very tough exterior. And I would fight everywhere. I'd get my butt kicked a lot, you know, but I would fight. All my knuckles were broken from boxing as a kid, you know, because uh, I really wasn't that good a fighter. I just wouldn't let anybody push me. And, but um, I remember what I would do. Back in those days, there was a row of abandoned warehouses before they built the Dan Ryan, and I would stash female clothes there. So I'd come out of the projects, go, go into these dangerous warehouses, get all dressed up, and hop on a bus on Wentworth and come up to the north side. You know, and that's still what kids basically from the south side do today. You know, they, 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 they come up here for safety. Now, believe me, this strip up here, I'm talking, Back then, it was south, uh, like uh, Clark Street and, and, and Grand Avenue and Chicago Avenue, the, like the 1002 Club, and you know. Uh, and I used to play pool. I learned how to play pool in the Dragon Queue in Chinatown again. And um, I would hustle. I mean, I would, that would be my, my, my thing. I could make money shooting pool. You know, I don't have those skills anymore. I wish I did, <laughs> you know, but... Um, I would get on a bus and come up here, and it, it was just liberating. I, I don't think that people understand how, how, how liberating it is just to be able to be who you are, you know, unless they, they, they you know, uh, it, it's much, I don't know, I don't even know if it's much easier today, you know. I, I don't really think it is. I think that we're open, but when you come down to your family and you talk to them and everything, it's the same problem, you know, that, that you get rejected and 
you have to go outside of your community and that other community may not be that welcoming. You know, so to, to me, Chicago at that time, there, there was no, no real place where transgender people, either you were, you were a drag queen, you know, or you were a transvestite. I don't think I even heard the word uh, transgender until I was 30. You know, I mean, there was a lot of like drag queens. So 1965, I was in a, uh, we decided to go to the Protestant church to play basketball. Now I don't play basketball, so I was playing chess that night. <laughs> you know, no, with, with, with a classmate of mine, you know, and you know, I would always play that, 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 that little tough role, the male role that I was supposed to, that, that's what I could get away with, you know. But then in that, in that gymnasium where I was playing chess in the corner, I spotted this girl. And a few people in this place know who this girl is. Her name is Lola, and it was my first love. I mean, I have completely went head over heels over this girl. You know, so we went through the dance that we go through. And I finally came out and told her that I wanted to be a girl. And boom, she like dropped me like a hot potato. You know, years later, you know, she became a well-known activist who, um, uh, as a lesbian feminist, you know. But back then, again, we were both all living our little things where we were too ashamed to deal with our own sexuality, you know. Um, and in Chinatown, also, another friend of mine, a Mexican kid named Petey Boy, who was this gorgeous-looking kid who was a drummer in a band and a gang member and everything, you know, um, he would always be very protective towards me. And, you know, all the girls loved him and pursued him and everything. In 1983, he became one of the first people to die of AIDS, you know, in New York City. Um, he had been, all this time, he had been gay and had been able to hide it, you know. And there was a couple other people that I grew up in that neighborhood who, turned out years later to, to you know, um, exp become free, I suppose. You know, some of them died just simply because they have to hide themselves and everything. You know, myself, in 1968, the Democratic Convention, that's when I became, like, politically radical. You know, as soon as I became politically radical, I got drafted. You know. <laughs> you know, and so I showed up at the draft board in a little, uh, like, mini dress, and a, uh, so, 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 so I, 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 one of my, one of my sister's wigs and some, you know, genuine imitation Naga hide boots, you know, uh, and they still drafted me, so. <laughs> So I, I, ref, I refused induction, so I was arrested, I posted bail, and then I got on a plane the next day um, to San Francisco. I lived, I went to San Francisco's Chinatown, and that's where I became a political activist. I, I uh, worked at a place uh, with students from Berkeley, 
uh, called the International Hotel, you know, and that, that, that was a hotbed of radicalism in San Francisco's Chinatown. You know, from there I got connected to the, <clears throat> to um, Cesar Chavez, United Farm Workers. I spent a couple of summers, and at the same time I got accepted to Berkeley uh, on a program they call the High Potential Program. That was for like high school dropouts and ex-cons and everything. And you know, and the, you take the entrance exam, and if you passed it, you got in. And they transferred me to UCLA. So you know, I was at UCLA, and you know, one of my professors was Angela Davis, who again, if if I needed, you know. If I needed any radicalization, I sure got it there. <laughs> and, uh, um, all of my experiences sort of like pancaked on top of each other to make me the person that I was. But I was always a Chicagoan. You know, uh, and the funny thing about UCLA, a lot of the radicals that were out there were from Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> you know, I mean, Ronald Reagan was right. A lot of outside agitators. <laughs> you know. We... Also, being in San Francisco was interesting because in 1970, I tried to work on, on the Harvey Milk uh, uh, campaign, but they would not let any, any, any queens or transgender, you know, they, they wanted as, as normal looking a crew out there, you know, uh, politicking. You know, so to me, again, even in the gay community, there was a lot of rejection Excuse me. Um, I guess what I w the thing that I want to emphasize to everybody is the importance of doing what I'm doing. Tell your stories, especially if you come back from you know 60s and 70s. And I mean, I've heard some wonderful stories from people who are 90 years old. You know, it, you need to put your stories out there because the experiences, you know, are not just what's going on. You know, with people that are 20 years old. It, it, there's a lot to learn. I learn from people who are 20. I hope that they're learning something from me. And I, I'm not a good storyteller or anything. I just like telling people, you know, some of the stories. Because we're limited in terms of time. There's a lot of stuff that I could tell you, and some of it is crazy. Um, for example, I remember one time we had a... <laughs> we had a gang fight. We had a gang fight in Chinatown. And... <laughs> You know, I showed up, I had my combat boots on, my blue jeans, my motorcycle jacket, you know, my pompadour hairdo, and, you know, had my little pack of cigarettes, you know, right underneath the jacket there. And underneath, I had garter stockings and a bra. <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so, we're in this alley, and the Dan Ryan Expressway had just had just opened a few weeks earlier, and there was this thing called Oriental Arts. The same thing is still there, and there's this little alley there, and we got cornered in there, and some guy was shooting at us, and so my friend got like panicky, and he wouldn't shoot. So I grabbed the gun and I shot him, right, you know, and I hit I, I hit the guy in the elbow, you know, and so then we ran and we ran half a block away to the restaurant. We got into the restaurant, and all of a sudden I realized, well, the police are going to be here in a few minutes. So I ran into the bathroom, you know, pulled off the bra, <laughs> pulled off the stockings, stuffed them all into the garbage can, and then came out. Sure enough, the police came up. They threw us all up against the wall. And so they go, they go look for the, the weapons and stuff in the bathroom. So he comes out, he comes out of the, the bathroom. He says, well, this is 
I don't know who could kill somebody with this. You know. <laughs> you know, but my life has been like, and I'm not embellishing. Well, maybe I am a little bit. <laughs> you know, but, but my life, and I'm sure everybody's lives, there's stories like that that seem impractical, but, you know, life is funny. I just want to thank everybody here for giving me the time just to share a little bit. Queer folks have existed since the beginning of humanity, but let's just go back to 1969. Right after the Stonewall Riots, a new group called the Gay Liberation Front formed in New York City and cropped up in several other cities. In Chicago, they picketed for a gay bar's right to allow same-sex dancing. In San Francisco, their members showed up at the San Francisco Examiner's offices to protest after the newspaper used gay slurs. Gay Liberation and another activist group called the Society for Individual Rights met outside the offices on Halloween 1969 with picket signs. Above them, the newspaper staff opened the third floor window and dumped a plastic bag full of purple printer ink on the protesters. The activists dropped their signs, put their hands in the ink on the sidewalk, and started putting their handprints all over the examiner building. With their finger, one picketer wrote on the wall, fuck the examiner. Another wrote, gay is, before he was suddenly grabbed by the hair and dragged to a police van. The tactical squad pulled up and began arresting the picketers and none of the ink dumping newspaper employees. It's total mayhem. Police beat the picketers, clubbing them, knocking them down, and taking them into custody. Everyone who got away went picketing through the San Francisco Tenderloin neighborhood to City Hall, and they held a sit-in in the mayor's office until the last of them were arrested. Their handprints remained. After the ink was dumped and the riot broke out, it became known as the Friday of the Purple Hand. Scott is a storyteller, teacher, and instructor living in Chicago who is as passionate about hearing your stories as he is about telling his own. Scott is the host of This Much Is True, one of the longest-running storytelling series in the city. Creator of StoryLab Chicago, which has put 400-plus new tellers on stage since 2011. Scott is also director of Do Not Submit, a city network of 10 open mics focused on connecting neighbors through story. He performs anywhere someone will listen, teaches a monthly class, and coaches people and organizations in developing their voices. In his free time, he's either on a bike, in front of a grill, or sitting in a sauna. Please welcome Scott Whitehair. Come on, come on, buddy. Oh. Few honors compared to, to getting to be on this stage tonight and being invited to do this particular show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you guys for being here. Thanks. You're so gay! My eight-year-old cheeks burnt with anger and turned red. I could feel my body heat up, and I screamed, no, I'm not! I was eight. I didn't have much of a concept of what gay was. But I knew that there, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Western Pennsylvania, it was something that you were not supposed to be. When I went to high school, I, I gained a basic understanding, but I wasn't exposed to more of the world. There were no openly gay people in my high school. It was too dangerous. Even the adults, I, I don't remember meeting a single uh, openly gay person at that time in my life. 
And so I went through high school without much knowledge. Um, what I did was I was nice, I was extra nice to the people who were whispered about, who, who things were said about. Um, but I did it in the way that you were extra nice to somebody who had like a terminal illness or cancer. And of course, when teasing with friends, I slew, threw around slurs like the rest of them. And I'm not gonna defend it by saying, well, it's not what we meant by it, or it was harmless, it was ignorance. When I went to college, my world expanded, but only by like half a foot. <laughs> I went to a small school in Central PA, there were like 1,200 people there. Um, but part of it was there were more people and philosophies and things coming into my field of vision and into my life, and included that, and that were the first openly gay people I was around. But at that point, they became an exotic other. I was like, who are these people? I, I remember one night my friend Corey, um, her friend had come to visit. And when he got there, he, he was gay. We peppered him with questions for like 25 minutes. Like, what's it like? Who are you? What is this? How do you do this and that? Till finally this poor exhausted guy said, guys, it's, it's really simple. I like dick. <laughs> now get the fuck ready so we can go find some for me. And I met, and I met, and liked, and respected uh, quite a few openly gay people I met. Um, but still, I treated, it was an other. Like, I would introduce people like, this is my gay friend, Tim. Or, uh, this is Lisa, my lab partner, who is gay. <laughs> when I moved to Chicago in 2005, my world expanded again, but this time, it was like a burlap sack being ripped off of my head. Suddenly, I was watching different people, languages, cultures, arts, philosophies, and it was overwhelming. And one of those early days looking for an apartment in Boys Town, I was just everywhere, rainbow, everything, drag queens walking down the street drinking Starbucks, a thing called Gay Mart. Now, I wish I could tell you, I wish there was some, for the sake of the story, some big moment where a wiser, older person pulled me aside and gave me some good words, and I, I finally got it. But the truth is, it was much more mundane. As I fell into my life into Chicago, as I became a Chicagoan, as I learned about the world, that otherness just dropped away. One bus ride one improv class or one conversation at a time. And soon, these strange creatures uh, that I'd been surrounded by, gay people, they weren't strange creatures anymore. They were just my coworkers or my classmates or my friends. I would just as soon at that point introduce somebody, a friend as gay as I would, be, uh, this is uh, my brown-haired friend, Keith, or this is Lisa who eats pizza. It just dropped away. A few years after being here, one Sunday morning, I went to brunch at Duffy's. Now, if you haven't been to Duffy's, I don't know if it's still like, it's been a long time. It was, it's like nine in the morning, but it feels like a Lincoln Park club. It's loud music, bad shrimp, but most importantly for my wife and I, all you can drink mimosas. 
and we got there early, and we wanted to get our mimosa, like per mimosa rate down to like a nickel, so we were hitting it hard. <laughs> we got there when they opened, and we, we went at it. But when we walked out a few hours later in an alcoholic daze into the bright sunlight, the street had changed. Where it was empty before, it was lined with people. People cheering and dressed festively and with signs. And I hadn't been to the pride parade. I thought, oh my God, this, here it is. And then in that moment, I saw one of the most beautiful things I had seen in my life up to that point. A flatbed truck pulling right in front of me. And in the back, young, bronze, fit, oiled men in neon underwear <laughs> dancing and dance to club music and gyrating. One, as I'm looking and the smile spreads across my face, looks right at me and goes. <laughs> and then, in the next moment, was one of the worst things. Because as that truck pulled out of my view from across the street, it revealed people on a platform, and I heard through a megaphone, God hates you. Your family hates you. You will all get AIDS and die. And that feeling I had just had before that was ripped out of my body. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And I thought, my first thought was action, like somebody do something, but what? argue with them? Violence? Should I write a stern essay or a blog post? I, I, I felt helpless, but I still thought, how? How is this here? A few years later, or about a year later, um, I'm cleaning up my apartment, and it's a mess because I'm doing a lot of like sketch comedy and weird acting jobs, so it's filled with costumes and all kinds of weird stuff. I'm trying to clean up my apartment, um, and as I am, I'm trying to find what can I do with things. One thing I found was this Jesus costume. I had gotten it uh, for a show I was in, and it was like five minutes of stage time, and I was broke and unemployed at the time, and I'm like, that's an expensive Jesus costume to just use for five minutes. And so it's sitting on the couch as I'm getting things in order. And on TV, the news starts talking about Fred Phelps. And those fucks. <laughs> and in that moment, the costume, the news, something clicked. And so that summer, I'm walking down the sidewalk, fighting traffic, trying not to trip over my robe. I'm sweating, and not just because of the cheap wig and crown of thorns on my head. And I come walking up on those people and their platform. And as I approach, they see me and they start nodding. <laughs> like I'm coming to join them. And the parade, the people there for the parade are all look disgusted and they're shaking their heads and shoulder checking me and bumping me around on the sidewalk. But when I get in front of them from the garbage bag I brought with me, I pull the sign that my wife and I had made the night before and I raise it above my head. And there, dressed as Jesus, I hold my sign that says, I am not with these guys. <laughs> The parade goers erupt in cheers. The haters lose their shit. 
they start, they can't even comprehend. They start saying, weird stuff, like, that's not him. That's not Jesus. That's not him. Like as if there's a danger that be, and, and, and the rest of the day is a blur. It's all hugs and high fives and waving to parade goers and hearing ridiculous things behind me uh, and beads and, and, and hugs and all kinds of amazing things. Sunburn, um, dehydration. And, uh, and, and, and my favorite part, leaning in to whisper to people as they gave me a hug and say, just ignore them. Go have fun. And my favorite part of it was when somebody would walk up on those guys, hearing them already, and I'd watch their faces, I'd watch their body start to buckle under this nonsense the way I had across the street the year before. And then they saw me, and it even got worse, like, ugh. And then they read the sign and they smiled, and they walked away smiling. And I thought, that's, that's something. I learned a lot over the, last, or the, the next couple of years doing this. Um, one, I learned you got to have somebody watching your back from the year those guys leaned the megaphone down right next to my head when the cops weren't, weren't uh, watching. And I, I couldn't hear out of this ear for like four or five days. Um, I also learned uh, it's really hard to get body paint out of a cheap polyester costume robe. <laughs> I learned that uh, every year there'd be at least one or two people who would hit me with a water bottle, push me or something else because they were too drunk to read the sign. And I'd have to go, no, look. I learned that everybody who saw me believed uh, that I was uh, gay and Christian. Um, like the guy who's like, it's so amazing that you express your love for Christ this way. And I said, I'm not even sure if I believe in him. <laughs> or the news camera that put the camera in my face and they said, this is great. Just look at us and say, I'm here, I'm proud, and I'm gay. And I said, would you settle for two out of three? I also learned that a light paperboard sign held above your head for four hours will kill shoulders that don't see a gym all year. <laughs> but mostly I learned that a small, funny gesture on behalf of your friends and family can make a tiny difference, at least for those people that you come into contact with. In 2014, the summer, um, after the parade, the week after the parade, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm working for guaranteed rate. Actually, I'm pretending to work for guaranteed rate. <laughs> and on this day, my phone is bu it's buzzing. It's not even in between. It's just constant all day long. I'm watching the ticker on Facebook notifications go up like the national debt thing. And my email is blowing up. Every year there are pictures, and someone will send me one, or a local thing, like, hey, cool, there's your thing, and I'm, it's great. But this year, someone, a photographer, had caught, had caught some magic. Because there I was in the foreground with the sign, but what made the photo was right to the side, there's a cop. And he looks, a lot of people think he looks like Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> and he's looking over, and he has the biggest shit-eating grin on his face. <laughs> When the internet saw this photo, they went apeshit. And it was shared, I was getting emails and calls and the things like, I think you're, you are on, you're number two on Reddit right now, which I'm just nearly 40, I'm like, what's Reddit? What's, what's how, how, is that bad? Um, 
uh, Huffington Post, George Takai, the inner, uh, Facebook, the God character, just everywhere. And it was, it was so overwhelming. It was surreal um, uh, that my photo, somebody, my brother works at a factory in Western PA and somebody came up to him on the line and was like, check this photo out. My, my brother's like, I think, I think that's my brother. And it was everywhere, and it was, it, was, it was so surreal. And it was amazing that this small gesture could be widened out and that the sentiment was supported. I've been doing this for seven years, and I have to say, it's one of the few things on my yearly calendar, like Christmas, my mom's birthday, and the Pride Parade. And I protect it. It's one of those things, no, this is what's happening on that day. Um, I, I, I'm so happy to get to do it, um, and I'm, I'm so happy to continue. But also, I can't wait for when that ends. I can't wait for that day when I show up and there's nobody to stand in front of for when they give up. Because I'm going to be so excited to do what I wanted to do that first day when I came out of Duffy's, is to stand there, no costume, no nothing, just stand there and be a part of that day and enjoy the parade. Um, I'm lucky I got this opportunity for this small gesture, this small gesture for my friends and family. And I want to express, too, it, it is, it's small. Um, no matter what the hoopla or media stuff, it's, it's small. Compared to people who work day in, day out in anonymity, in offices, on street corners, in meetings, in courtrooms, working every day for equality to make it a better world for all of us, this thing I do is so incredibly small. But I feel fortunate that I get to do that small thing. And I also know we're all capable of small things and that they add up. Thanks for joining us. Please, if you have a moment, rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Alexis Martinez recorded her story in August 2015, Kiara Goldstein in February 2020, and Scott Whitehair in November 2016. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim Hunt, curated by Archie Jamjohn. Artistic director is David Fink. Stage manager, Brad Bailoff. Story collector, Ray Teresi. Audiovisual tech, Brian Smith. Podcast producer, Devlin Camp. Hi. I also have a queer history podcast if you're interested. It's called Queer Serial. That's serial with an S because it's the serialized story of queer liberation in America before Stonewall. You can find it wherever you're listening to this. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQIA community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can find out more information about Outspoken at sidetrackchicago.com slash outspokenchicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month.